we cannot grasp how deep this intelligence is. But I become smaller and smaller and more silent the more I, I get closer to that. So it's not about uh, knowing more. It's just about knowing less and experiencing more and being aware that what's happening already is, is immense. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here exploring slow approaches to creative thinking and practice aim to awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. The podcast is produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Maria Bleza and Kate Moore. Maria Bleza is an interdisciplinary artist and materials researcher who works closely with the structural systems in nature. Her work bridging architecture, fashion, music, dance, science, and engineering invites us to imagine a dynamic and generative interplay between our natural, constructed, and technological systems. Maria has exhibited in places as diverse as Kyoto, Paris, Perth, Stockholm, and New York, and she has taught students and led workshops in all those places and more. Kate Moore is an internationally acclaimed composer whose music compositions have been performed by ensembles and orchestras the world over. Her accolades are many, including in 2017 having been awarded the prestigious Dutch Composition Award the Matthijs Vermeulen Prize. Kate has had fellowships and residencies from Tanglewood to the Paris Conservatory. Maria Bleza and Kate Moore both are based in Amsterdam, and I'm so pleased to have them here with me today to discuss the glimpses of brilliance and possibility that their work offers for the near future of AI. Kate and Maria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. I'd like to start from the beginning with your work, Maria. Mm. There was a distinct starting point, or rather a turning point in your research. Um, it was a discovery in 1985 that you say has fueled 40 years of research. Um, tell us what happened. Okay. Um yeah, my, my children, they needed a, a, a fireman's cap for a party. And I just imagined that I could cut it out of a tire, and I, a, an inner tire of a, of a car. And um, so I started cutting in an old tire, and I, I made an incision in it, and I put it on my head. And then I discovered something with the, the three-dimensional form of my head and a, a three-dimensional curve of the tire 
there was something that struck me deeply. So I, I, I made ads for the children that that was that was okay. But I continued structuring what I found. First, I did it for the head, and later for the whole body. There's a name for this form. That's the inner tube of the tire. Yeah, that's the torus. Yeah. And they also call it a donut, but I, I call it a torus or the inner tube of a car. So it's a contained form, but it has a hole in the middle, yeah. right? And that was the point that you started from to work with other materials and to tra- and transforming it into a variety of shapes, right? And through them, you discovered or you explored this range of geometric forms that actually emerged from that one form, right? The disc the sphere, um, centripetal and centrifugal spirals, yes, um, and the oloid, which is one we may come back to. It was a very precise research on the proportion of the material and the, the thickness and the length of the cuts I make. And, and then finally, one form in this whole process is able to perform all forms or an infinite um, amount of forms. So first was research in the rubber form, in the donut, in the, in the torus form. Then I uh, went to the foam for the body on a larger scale. And then I did it in the knitwear and then um, also for the body. Uh, and then I found a, a mesh form in a polyester gauze. And then I could find from this two-dimensional mesh by pulling and pushing threads um, and wires, I could make exactly the same forms as from the torus. So there was like a whole new dimension. And from mm. there, I translated into bamboo. And, and then the flexibility of bamboo is so amazing. I built this one pavilion and this, there's an energy because many forms are, are possible in the form. You talk about how the forms are energized and how they also give energy to those who encounter them. Yeah, that's something beautiful. When the body and the form are uh, interacting, there's something you don't know. A new field is opening up. So, Maria, when I first encountered your work in 2008, um, it was a film showing the animation of one of your flexible bamboo forms by a dancer. And it was this fluid interplay between two bodies where the form seemed to be alert and anticipating the movement of the dancer and the dancer was feeling her way into the potentiality of the form. And that day I wrote down in my notebook, this is the future of architecture. These will be the forms of our transport. This could be the shape of our cities. Wow. (laughs) And um, Kate, I'd like to ask you, what was it like for you, um, for your creative and also mathematical mind as a composer to encounter Maria's forms for the first time? Yeah, I was completely blown away uh, because I recognized the forms somehow. They they struck a, a chord with me to see something that was realized because I have this thing where I imagine the physical form, but actually I have no means to build it tan- in a tangible way. Mm. I build it through like this invisible language of frequencies. And the mm. thing that goes on in my mind, like I visualize it as though it's a, a real physical shape. 
So to see Maria's work, I was blown away because she built these shapes, which I was imagining. Mm. And uh, I can't exactly remember when I first met Maria, because I think because we have a mutual friend in common who's a cellist, Liddy Blydorf, and she was the one that introduced me to Maria. I don't even know how that happened, but she's sort of a little bit of a magician. She's a wizard, a a wizardess. Yeah, yeah. She's tuned in. To, she's also tuned into this extra dimension and she gets it. She gets your work, she gets my work, and that's how she brought us together. Mm. So it's one of those curious and amazing, sort of miraculous things of like people who think alike somehow get drawn to each other by, yeah. without, yeah. it's like, that's wonderful. And yeah. you've also, you've, you've talked about how. Maria's forms are the sort of physical or material manifestation of sound itself. And well, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, there's structure in music which is not sound itself. It's, it's also mathematical. It's, so it can be translated to any material. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also sound itself has the same sort of structures inherent within. Mm-hmm. So on, on two levels, on, in the music itself with frequencies and then on the mathematical side of the architecture of music. So the cellist Lily Blydorp performed her magic and introduced two kindred spirits to one another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then she brought you together last November in Amsterdam for a concert where she was performing one of your pieces, Kate called Stories for Ocean Shells. And the piece was performed while a dancer animated one of Maria's flexible bamboo forms in response to or in collaboration with the music. Um, And one of the meeting points of your work that you spoke about at that program during an interval where the two of you were brought into conversation is the inspiration that you both draw from nature. Definitely. Um, Maria, I had to think of some lines from your book, The Emergence of Form, published in 2013. Um, in it, the Dutch novelist Uke de Jong wrote of your work, uh, I marvel at this oeuvre because it is so powerfully inspired by nature, or rather by so-called primal forms. The beauty of a drop of water falling in slow motion, desert dunes, dolphins, the orbits of planets, antelopes, the moon, seaweed, and crystals. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. <laughs> I'd love to hear from both of you how nature informs your practice. And Kate, in your case, maybe you could fill in a little bit on the subject of the mathematical in nature. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what I see in Maria's work and also what I'm inspired by is also a question because a lot of people ask me, how how is nature in my work Um, and um, because there's also two ways of thinking about nature I think that's in physical form shape or the 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 movement of energy from one thing to the next and I think that's really the language of music actually I mean thinking about a score that's that would be the shape of the of, of so like for example, Fibonacci series, you can draw that in notes on, or you can draw that in rhythm. But then the realization of the music is that it's moving from one point to the next. And it's always from the beginning point. Like, I mean, music in a way is a, a, a macro structure of a note. The note mm. itself is, is also 
and a, a piece of music in that it starts from the moment the, that it that that energy is excited so like a it's it's hit <laughs> it make mm. it starts <laughs> and you have a tone and then it stops and it, but it's a it's a push of energy and that's what it is and then creating a, a musical structure is that it's it's sort of creating a path through which energy passes and that's your experience of hearing mm. music so it's that sort of it's that direction and that sculpting of of energy which comes from nature um, which mm. is very much the language that I that I work with and thinking about like the harmony of how um, how a structure fits its environment. Mm. Maria, you also talk about your work as the sculpting of energy. Yeah, um, I totally understand, Kate. Um, I have no words anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do things. I do do things intuitively. I cannot explain geometric forms, but I have to show them. So I show with the bamboo all these lines, and they transform, and they. Um, exactly with, this, with the right dimensions, you can perform all these forms. But I, uh, it just happens when I'm ready to share it, it materializes. Mm. And then you do it in sound and I do it in material. So, mm. and then it, it goes from one point to the other, and that point is very exact. And then once you have that, you can continue. So it's, it builds up to experiencing. And then the body knows. Hmm. So my hands, my hands do the work and then I get to know the material very well. And then you're together with the material. I think that's our part to be so as efficient as nature. Well, we never are, but as close hmm. as we can. Um, then you get this understanding and connection and freedom to continue. And that's also, I think, when... Uh, an other way of thinking can join, an, or like artificial intelligence. So first you have to find what nature is from this incredible ingenuity, how do you say it? In, ingenuity. It's, yeah, ingenuity. It's so, so much, you, you cannot understand this richness. So we come as close as we can. I find it so um, fascinating that you both talk about it in terms of points and moving between points and all of this potentiality or these almost like universes that are content that could be contained within those gaps between the points. Once you're at a point, a new dimension opens. Yeah. So that's the beauty. It's never stopping. It's always going into abundance and into and then you make the structure. You follow the lines or the points and then. Yeah, it's it's a you feel the DNA of form and movement. Maria, you have said so many times that we understand so little of what surrounds us. And then through your forms you make a little bit more of that visible. Yeah, and, and it's it's not about the forms. It just happens I, I developed this form language finally in uh, in these uh, last 40 years. But the main thing is to share this and that other people, more disciplines can find the same level of meeting mm. and you can learn from each other. And when you don't understand each other, so much energy lost. So I said also on that level, how can we understand each other? And how can we find this 
energy flow where, where we can work together. Yeah, like sometimes I think about this. I've had a number of epiphany moments um, in, my, in, in my short span as a professional artist, um, uh, one including the, the shape structure transference of energy, but also another one is in the, um, in, like I spent some time in, in the bush in Australia a, a while back to, uh, and suddenly became aware of, of Indigenous culture in a way that I'd never been before. But in that awareness, I started to think about um, cultures outside our contemporary uh, materialistic culture and how they survived like for many thousands of centuries before the 20th century without electricity and without 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 so many things that we take for granted how how do they get by and it be, and and I started to realize things like for example um, the technology of this is going to sound really funny the technology of of glasses of like ways to enhance your seeing is huge and it's so recent. Hmm. So before glasses, how on earth did people survive? Because thinking about how many people that I know, including myself, just can't see without glasses, that came made me come to the realization that the uh, visual culture is very recent, and hmm. that before this, okay, there was a other dimensional awareness which had to do with number one with sound, number one, number two with feeling, and number three with sensing. I think hmm. sensing energy, and I think it's like it's another sense that we have beyond seeing tasting hearing feeling is a, is a sensing sensing it's like an inner eye a sensing of energy that you can see mm. a little bit like for example echolocation of bats that, that right. they can they can see their environment without using their eyes yeah um and i think that that the sensing of energy is a little bit similar we can visualize energy yeah and this visualizer and, and this other dimension that um, maybe maybe you, Maria, maybe I a little bit because we work in this field ha have it, where other people also have it, but they're not aware of it because um, because our modern contemporary society is so visual based and so um, so overstimulated in lots of ways, which yeah. which mean that we kind of, we become kind of sort of blind to this other sense. Yeah, mm. I totally agree. But when when um I first was teaching 17 years at the Rietveld Academy and I was really tired and I, I lost my energy. So it was good. I stopped. But then I started working with uh, in workshops in nature and, and I knew for myself when you are in nature, you have no distraction. This mm. connection happens, mm. happens naturally, but you don't recognize it. So I, I found a way to, to structure the listening and the moment that you just start, um, well, something catches your attention in nature, uh, some, some, some leaf or whatever, it doesn't matter where you start. And then a day later, you can sense better what you didn't feel the day before. So every day we make this stronger just to go into the first moment you meet a leaf or a, yeah. well something that attracts your attention yeah. and then at the end of the week this is a very very clear process very precise with a lot of evaluation and at the last days you you work with you, you get such a deep connection that you can work with your energy and what you find in nature and then 
for the rest of your life you are connected. So mm. it's then you know about collaboration and you know your own source. I invited you to contribute to a book a few years ago when you actually wrote about a plant in your studio and watching every time a leaf comes out, the magic of its opening. You say how it is rolled up one way and rolled up the other way. And then by little shocks, little lines, it opens up. And then from an enormous tension, it will loosen and the spiral will emerge. It happens over time. It is a matter of care, even for something very small, such as a little leaf. That is where it starts. With care, the real attention you have, you are having a meeting. It is about becoming conscious. Wow. <laughs> They're your words. Yeah, yeah then, then that's true. There's a total focus. That's when it happens. Yeah. It's so nearby. It happens mm -hmm. around us now. Huh? So it's more that you realize... Yeah, we are in all these movements. The energy is around us. And how do we relate to it? Yeah, so, so you huge. pick it up when you have your focus. Mm -hmm. Well, there's something else I was reminded of when Kate was speaking about going into the bush in Australia. Um, there was a program that we did together in San Francisco where your forms were <laughs> had a very active presence, let's say. And there was a man from the Fiji Islands who attended a conversation, a public conversation. And um, he talked about, he saw immediately the potential for these forms, not only to connect cultures that are closer to nature with the West, but he talked about it as um, that through the geometry of the forms, there was a pathway for Western people to access other layers of consciousness. Wow. Yeah. That was a, that was such a striking and impressive yeah. moment. And so true. It's something that really rings true. Actually, when you know, when one knows your work, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit interesting for the listener not to have, not to have a view to these forms or not to have a direct experience of them and just to be listening to this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I do hope it will encourage people to explore both of your work. I think that's so, so important. Um, I wanted to talk about what the, what the process is like for both of you. Maria, you said that, in, and you say that you spend an average of seven years investigating one material. You were talking about how you, just a few minutes ago, about how you are looking deeply into its potential until it's ready to be shared. So there's this moment, you've described the process of research as a restlessness, a longing for connection. Yeah, absolutely. There's an energy that wants me to work, to find out. So mm -hmm. there's some, wow, it's a glimpse into something that you recognize something like, wow, I have to find out. And that can take me seven years. And then, and that's, it's so strong that I have to do it. I cannot stop. I tried mm. to stop several times, but then the other energy is stronger. So, and then finally, I I learned this new dimension that opened up. Yeah, it's really quite amazing. But there's also sort of brings up thoughts and feelings of our reason to be, <laughs> and that um, yeah, this this idea that that we're all 
eyes for a deeper creation. Mm. Maybe this is a different discussion completely, <laughs> but these things are wanting to be seen and wanting to be found and that they find their eyes, they find their person. Mm. And that, that if it's meant to be, then it's meant to be. I love that, Kate, um, because also when, when I do these workshops, but I think also in my own work, uh, it's something is ready to be seen. And you mm. become so uh, silent and uh, attentive, and then it emerges. It's ready to be seen. It's all there already. Yeah, but it depends absolutely. on your focus and your structure. And then it op- it's it's this first is glimpse, but then it's fully um, emerges. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's actually absolutely for this conversation, Kate. Um, um, <laughs> in fact, I know that um, Maria has been inspired, as have I, by, for example, the theoretical physicist David Bohm, who talked about the implicate order and the explicate order. The implicate order being this enfolded or shrouded order that is a deeper kind of fundamental order of reality. And then the explicate or unfolded order being the, what we actually, the things that we actually can already, that we can perceive. Um, And that this, this idea, and there are many others who've talked about this potential for unfolding. It relates back to what uh, Maria says about how we understand so little of what's going on around us. And, Maria, you also have talked about it in terms of unity or unifying forces as opposed to disconnecting forces. Yeah, well, that's already in this Taurus. You have exactly these two opposites are happening. So so by cutting on two sides of the Taurus, I found out. And by working with, with what I found, I could make that very clear. Wait, what do you mean? The Taurus has disconnecting forces as well as unifying forces? Well, if you... If you um, Cut on on the outside of the Taurus, you get a you get a form that opens up. It, you have no connection anymore. It opens up to the universe. It disperses. Mm. Um, Schauberg says it beautifully. It's about the dialectic unity of wholeness, and that happens in one Taurus. Mm. Is that Schauberger, Victor Schauberger? He just found out about all these opposites. I found out about the Taurus, but what he's saying happens in Taurus. So it's all, as David Bohm would say, enfolded in the whole. So yeah. there is this, it is all part of this unifying um, force yeah. or this wholeness, rather. Um, yeah, but there is no wholeness if you have no opposites. It's always happening. We are just in the middle of it. And we use it, I use it in my work, and Kate uses it in the, in the for the sound. Yeah, Kate, how how do you use it, or how does what Maria is saying resonate? Um, I mean, think yeah, quite directly, almost unavoidably, I think. Um, in the, I mean, I can approximate it, of course, in the creation of of a composition, but actually, um, it happens directly. Um, in the creation of sound itself through an inst- musical instrument because we're inciting material to move. Um, mm. So I'm thinking like a, a string, for example, is kind of like a an explosion of energy from a point, so it's broken out. So it's not dissimilar mm. from the cutting of the torus. Um, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think because I'm also kind of new to the torus. 
But we spoke about like the cutting of the outside of the torus and then the cutting of the inside of the torus and the, the, the shapes that you get, one being sort of like a, 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 a like a bridge shape, the other being like a wave shape, like seaweed. Mm. And my first sort of initial reaction to that was, oh my gosh, it's the sine and cosine, which mm. is directly related to frequency, of course, because like the sine wave is the is the the peak in the trough, and the cosine is is when it's out of phase. Um, so, and that's directly related to resonance and how, in an architectural shape, the reflections of of frequency reach reach your ear. And you can also enhance or subtract sound by phasing the the two frequencies. So, if they're equally opposite, you can cancel them out, and that's how. We, and but if you move them out of phase, then you can create a, a louder, more resonant sound. Mm. Um, and that that's how musical instruments work, and that's how architecture works, and that's how. Um, acoustic spaces like concert halls work. The word resonance, it comes up a lot in my slow research conversations lately. Um, isn't it, couldn't you use that word to also describe how these two, these, these two bodies, the bamboo and the dancer, are attuned to each other while continuing to speak their own, with their own voice or language? Is that a from your standpoint, since the term comes from acoustics, would you agree with that or? It's a good question. I mean, the, the the mathematics of shapes in space and and how they are reflected from surfaces is is actually. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's not resonance. That's that's the that's the physical transference of energy. But resonance itself is the is the psychoacoustic perception that we have of the transference of energy. Oh, I see. Um, so that's what happens in our own mind. Hmm. I think. Yeah, but something I would like to say that during the performance uh, with you, Kate, with Ocean Shells and with Laura Sita, the dancer and the bamboo, uh, was because of your music, something happened that never happened before. She, she didn't know the form so well, but by the music, she was so uh, guided that this mm. was much more intimate happening than ever happened. So many more forms were just opening up and transforming yeah. Yeah, so there was really a, a beautiful thing happening. Yeah. Mm. So the energy is is really it is resonating for sure, and it is the sensory it's the it's the sensory translation from one mm. one form to the to the other through yeah. the senses, sen yeah. a sensory experience. So in that respect, definitely there's resonance between music and and yeah. movement of form. Also, it's a, a touching of open, being open for each other's energy. Yeah, the bamboo has a body of work and the body has a body of work. <laughs> they just interact. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I should say that my not having the same expertise that you have, Kate, I often use the word resonance in the way the sociologist Hartmut Rosa does. He wrote a whole book called Resonance about resonance. And he has written that resonance is tied to an openness of wanting to be affected and answering. Yeah, for sure. It's not so much I have to change myself, but rather let yourself be transformed by the other, by getting in touch with it. I, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, yeah, the feel, the feeling of 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 tuning in, the feeling of, mm. of having a connection, the feeling of yeah. of, of of giving and receiving. Mm. And that's what happens in improvisation. Definitely so. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk about improvisation because. I know it's very important to Maria's research and how the research is shared. I'd love to hear about that from you too, Kate. Yeah. yeah. Um, Maria, you you 
I don't know where, but you've talked about it as the a dance of possibilities. Beautiful. That's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I like to find out with the dancer and with the material and the moments and with music or and the circumstances, what comes together and just not know, just trust, trust the others as well and be ready to be, to come together in that moment. And that's for me the most fantastic thing. And that energizes me for, to find these moments, that's the energy I live on, I think, to have this new, new uh, opening up, totally different dimensions because you don't know. If the dancer is open to feel the possibilities of the bamboo, then it happens. But if the dancer is thinking about his or her own movements and the technical capacity, mm. then nothing happens. Then it's that. So it's the, the dancer opens up fully and has all the technique available, like also mm. classical music, then it happens. So you have to be totally there, but with a fully aware body, with a fully open body. I have a question for you, Kate, uh, relate or a provocation. Um, one of our, I would say, humanity's greatest improvisers, Miles Davis, wrote in his autobiography that um, he compared classical musicians to robots. <laughs> to get back to the artificial intelligence question, you know, the idea being that machines can easily replicate objects, but improvisation is a process that machines don't do as well, that it's not, it's something that's not rules-based, it's more fluid, it's more chaotic, one might say. Um, and reactive. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so as a classical <laughs> music composer, you all, you you would agree with that? No. I <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> just um, well, Miles Davis said the perfect. He wrote these are his words. The perfect thing is when musicians can both read a musical score and feel it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely mm. so. In this particular respect, I think about a score, a musical score, as more like a play, writing a play, um, and that uh, that the the musicians that are, are they're actors, and they assume the character of the line that they play in di in dialogue with the other actors mm -hmm. to create uh, to create a scenario or story or and thinking about that metaphor of music as play kind of outlines the possibility that that there are different functions for different aspects of music making. So improvisation has a role, but also making a score of classical music has a role which is different mm. from improvisation. And both are equally valid, but different. Um, in the same way, like actors can also improvise. They create right. their a dialogue with each other that creates a scene and people are watching it and get taken along the journey and very skilled actors then really kind of are very engrossing and 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 can mm. I don't know take you to a different different place very um effectively and that's the and musicians are the same they 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 have the ability to to have a dialogue with each other in such a, a way that takes you on a journey which mm. is um which is beautiful but then 
uh, there's a, another thing that I came across which was um, interesting to me. It's the, the thought of music as architecture um, and a classical score as being like architecture, which, like, for example, in architecture, if you improvise a building, you could build, like, a, a house um, and it would be really interesting. But perhaps the technical the, the technical possibilities of the structure is not as deep as if it was um, pre-planned as an architectural, like you couldn't improvise a skyscraper, mm. for example. Mm. And in a way, it's a similar thing with, with making a score. You can go into very complex, detailed architectural structures in a musical score, which you can't necessarily do with improvisation. And mm. it's not that there's one that one's more valid than the other because they're both equally valid. But it's that thing of, of of building a skyscraper in music that is also fascinating. Well, it's it's I can only speculate because he's not here, but I know that another important influence or source of inspiration for Maria is the Sri Lankan structural engineer Cecil Bauman, who has built many a skyscraper. <laughs> and he writes in his book Informal about improvisation and he says that despite the uncertainty in it, improvisation has a kernel of stability, which he says sets sequences into a kind of an equilibrium. So he imagines the coexistence of several different equilibriums that are organized not by a hierarchy, but by a simultaneity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. And that also applies to music. And uh, even in a musical score, in a classical score, you can combine improvisation with, with an underlying design structure, which is also like a tree, for example. Like mm. the, the inherent design structure is like that of the trunk and the branches, and the improvisation is that of the sudden emergence of the flowers mm. and leaves. Mm. An underlying structure that, that has a certain set of principles that you can rely on upon which improvisation can be built is also a fascinating form, a fascinating and complex and beautiful form. So the combination of the two is even more interesting. Mm. Like, a, yeah, building a skyscraper that then bursts into leaves and flowers. How amazing is that? <laughs> All right. It's like, a, I guess it, it's also like a dancer meeting one of your forms, Maria. There is that knowledge that's within them, within that body there is already, it has already been practicing, almost like rehearsing for this encounter with the bamboo. And I think Cecil Bowman says something about that too, like that the, the rules that govern, you know, those, these kind of these equilibriums that he's describing are already there in the brain. He just, he just likens it more to intuition. He says they're hidden to us. He says perhaps intuition has an internal mapping of its own uh, nonlinear algorithms yeah yeah Cecil Bowman he's an amazing guy um, and he has written a few books and some of his um, uh, quotes they really resonate to me because I I do it in the same way somehow he goes so deep into the material and his laws and his, he, he knows it in a way that he really can change uh, potential he can make a slab of concrete mm -hmm. uh, between two buildings, I think, of 50 meters wide and in a concrete of 10 centimeters in a curve hanging in the air, which nobody can. But he somehow, like with music, like with our imaginations, he makes it happen. 
and it works. So I like that. So he finds a hidden organizer, okay? the hidden structure, mm. and that's not something you find out, but you feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is a hidden organizer, and somehow you resonate when I hear Kate music. I resonate with her hidden organizer. <laughs> I like that. Very much. What do you What do you think about your Is your hidden organizer something you're you're acutely aware of, Kate? Or yeah, 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 for sure, of course. Yeah, sometimes I worry that it's not hidden enough. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say in relation to Cecil Bowman, um, what I found out, I never shared with him, but. Um, that first with all the all the forms that happened by the torus, so that's always in movement and flexible. And later I translated it um, into the bamboo. And now I've found out that uh, that's a structure. And now I've, I see that construction and structure are one and is transformable. And um, so how does that relate with music? It's very thought-provoking for me in a way that music is the glue between visual arts and, and, and literature and science and physics and, and every, everything. Music kind of is like the water which, mm. which, which goes between everything. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so like I often think about what is the kernel of, of music that's, that is, is its own thing um, uh, um, where does it become performance? Where does it? Where does performance become choreography? Where does choreography become movement? Where does movement become dance? And when? And then loop full circle back of where does dance then become music again? I guess um, the creating shapes in space, which is which is architecture and movement, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is and movement in frequency, frequency in, in, in sound. Um, it's all a loop. It all, it, it's all yeah. a dialogue. It's all the same thing. I think that would be. That, that's well, <laughs> I'd, I'd kind of like to draw back to this idea about linear versus nonlinear algorithms and getting back into our topic of artificial intelligence and the the way into that, I was thinking could be maybe that you, Kate, if you would share again this story of this collaboration with your father, who is a physicist. So um, I've tried on a few occasions to collaborate with my father to create sort of a sonification music piece uh, out of the data collected from uh, from his uh, from his research, and I find it fascinating to to sort of create a, a a model in music that that is equal to the sort of like the model that he builds. I mean, he builds a, a visual representation of, of of space junk, of stuff that's in the various layers of the atmosphere in relation to the moving globe that we live on. Um, and it's made in such a scientific and functional way um, that that can be interpreted by other organizations, for example, NASA or or stations that that send vehicles through the various layers of the atmosphere and they have to navigate um, and prevent colliding with space junk. So it's very functional. So it's about measurements and making numbers of distances and positions. Um, uh, and then I feel like my, my work's um, using the data to try and create the same sort of model in sound don't necessarily work or yet 
And, the, and one of the reasons is that a direct translation of data um, doesn't speak. Um, it, it, it's mechanical. It's like a robot. Um, mm. And the, so, so the creation of a composition has a human element to it which speaks, um, yeah. which I find really fascinating, that even though it's about structuring numbers, there's some sort of way of structuring numbers that has an emotional impact on, on the senses that, that then has, a, has resonance, whereas like this very robust, robotic um grid doesn't doesn't speak it's sort of painful to perceive it hurts there's some there's some sort of like emotional reaction which is actually keeps it out so i find it really fascinating the that 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 um that systems and mathematics can be either beautiful or ugly and that 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 the body wants wants to um Relate. Relate to some structures, but not others. (laughs) Do you think that the music would have been more beautiful if your father were mapping like supernovas instead of junk in space? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, is it a, is it the element of chaos which actually creates the feeling of 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 not of not wanting to connect or, or something? No, to be honest, no. I think it's about my language and in interpreting interpreting the data in such a way that um, that 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 maybe it's just that it's one dimensional. If I just literally translate numbers to sound, it's just too mechanical. It could be to do with uh, the classical idea of proportion or it could be to do with something something in in our system as of communication that um uh it's not about it's not necessarily about geometry but possibly about emergence <laughs> that's this is what my current thinking of like there isn't something that is turned on and turned off because the number is turned on and turned off, but the possibility of lots of numbers turning on and turning off, where the the the, the shape emerges from from all of these numbers turning on and turning off, which is actually really beautiful. Mm. So you create this this tapestry of texture, and it doesn't really necessarily matter what it is. It's still beautiful <laughs> no matter what you do, and that's the the sort of the emergence of the beauty of of structural shapes and numbers. Mm. And so that's kind of what I'm interested in, and in translating my father's work also in translating space junk of of like creating this tapestry of emerging shapes rather than a grid of numbers turning on and off. Let's all have a listen to a tapestry of emerging shapes now. This is Kate Moore's Stories for Ocean Shells, performed on cello by Ashley Bathgate. We've talked about improvisation and 
resonance. And I think what we are really talking about is emergence. Um, or at least emergence is a topic that I know you both have a lot to say about something that's emergence, the possibility for something that is as yet undiscovered, something to be revealed. And Maria, you titled your book, The Emergence of Form. Actually, you wrote a beautiful, simple poem that captures that. Um, would you mind reading it now? Yeah, sure. Form forms forms. Okay, I'll read it. Embedded in the material, the form reveals itself to experience the freedom of not giving a name to things, to see what emerges from one form, inciting the flow of continuous creation, no waste, no loss of energy, alert and alive. Yeah. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <Or> just... <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's all there to be revealed. You you don't have to do anything. It just you have to follow it. Well, it relates also to what Kate was saying about a tree having a structure, but then these leaves and flowers emerge yeah. from it. Right. Yeah. And in fact, the 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 term emergent in botany describes a plant that has this deep root system underwater and then it shoots up leaves and flowers above the surface so it's like it's like what you both describe about the research that you do and the work that you do to really that that you again maria that you say you do the research and then it's ready to share yeah, yeah, yeah. so of course in the context of this podcast being about artificial intelligence, but through a slow lens um, and through the lens of the work of, of people like yourselves. I mean, can we teach machines to learn through the emergent? No. <laughs> um, I, I'm just trying to think about that. Yeah, it, you, depend, it depends how you how you define machines or to demonstrate emergence. Yeah, because it's all, it's also to do with material. I think because it, uh, machines, everything is in a way. Anything that's a, co a complex stru um, moving structure in a way is kind of a machine. I mean, like I, I perceive that machines of the future not to be made of plastic and metal necessarily, but maybe of organic material. Like, for example, I came across a project while I was hiking, which I didn't look into further, but it is it sparked my imagination of using of 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 uh, harvest harvesting energy from trees to use to create electricity. But that's a machine. Yeah. That's a physical act of making something happen using an organic shape, which is the tree. And perhaps the machines of the future are sort of like a symbiotic relationship between living organisms and created or organisms, or I, I, I don't know. In that respect, for sure, I think we can probably harness their learning capacity. <laughs> mm. I think there is a learning capacity of machines, which, but the machines that we know now may be too limited or too too basic, too one-dimensional. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, what I found out in my work that when you start at one point, it opens up from 
one point into a wider dimension, more dimensions, and then it stays connected. And when the artificial intelligence is just bumping in somewhere and creating this knowledge, uh, it's not part of the whole. I think as soon as artificial intelligence is connected uh-huh. to a natural source, then you can work together. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. So that's the thing. It's the critical thing is the de- definition of art, art, like artificial intelligence. So the artificial immediately limits it to performing a function. Um, in, so actually what we want is intelligence, mm-hmm. full stop. <laughs> and perhaps machines have the ability to be intelligent. It's not artificial intelligence. Yeah, but it's still like the eternal creative intelligence. Like exactly. We cannot grasp it at all. I mean, just yeah. for a very small percentage. So as far as we get from nature, then we can include artificial intelligence on that path. And exactly, then it's yeah. connected. And then you're not causing waste. You're not ruining the, the planet. Mm. But then you're in balance with the, with the whole. It's that flow which reaches into every material thing. Well, I had to have some glimpses in my life. And by the glimpses, I'm pulled into this world. So you realize, wow, there's another dimension. So, yeah. and that's, that's, um, that's the, uh, from where I work. So it is emerging. Once you have this glimpse, then you're invited. Exactly. And to share that. That's the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Other dimension, yeah, yeah, and then the beauty is that it is about sharing, and that makes me more most happy. I also find in my experience that the, 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 the manner in which to share is also different from what I expected. Like, it's not necessarily a thing of handing something over, but that you do your thing fully, that other people then tune in as well, yeah. and that they realize it for themselves. So, it's not about sort of saying like preaching this is the way you should think but actually just by letting it happen people start to think like that or they start to realize something else but you don't have to tell them necessarily exactly it's it's that's true I love that it happens by itself it touches your own creative potential it touches your sensitivity it touches your um yeah something very essential so and then you can in that sharing because when it's preaching, it's bumped into you. It's just only one way. And when it's the way we talk about it now, it's a very subtle reaching to share where it resonates with the other. Mm. Yeah. How, could, how might we imagine a future of artificial intelligence that, as you say in your poem, Maria, has no waste, no loss of energy, is alert and alive? Like that bamboo sphere yeah. or oloids or torus that is that is silent but energized. Yeah, um, you have to include the artificial intelligence in the natural way because that's so that's an intelligence we cannot grasp yet. So you can become less arrogant, go deeper into what's already there. It's not about uh, knowing more. It's just about knowing less and experiencing more and being aware that what's happening already is is immense. And this artificial intelligence should just fit delicately <laughs> into what's already happening. And then it works. And otherwise you force it and then there's waste again. And um, 
Yeah, the deficiency will be bigger. Mm. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And that, that sparks a, a, like a whole other um, discussion, <laughs> I think, of power structures, hierarchy, and um, uh, the, uh, basically the, like the fundamental, perhaps, the fundamental flaw of our modern society of thinking about control as or like certain characteristics of, of um, wealth and materialisms being the ultimate goal. And that's based on exploitation and coercively controlling our surroundings, people, and also environment in order to be dominant. Yeah. But that is the fundamental flaw of our thinking. Yeah, it's one, it's, it was one of the premises for my starting this project, actually, because until now, these emerging technologies have been dominated from a certain, a certain, uh, a certain kind of perspective and a certain voice. A certain yeah. cosmology, a way of seeing the world. So certain kinds of knowledge systems have dominate the way that they are, the way that they are built, and the way that they proliferate in our lives. And it's a very, very small subset of humanity who is actually controlling these things. And that's why, for me, bringing in the voices of artists about artificial intelligence and potentially enabling um, interactions, direct dialogue and processes of, of uh, emergence that might come through collaborative research. This leads me to my last question, um, because I have no doubt that artificial intelligence could learn a lot from both of you. And an engineer from Silicon Valley who participated in a workshop with Maria that I curated um, a few years ago affirmed those potentialities that I saw in 2008 also when I first saw the forms. She recognized the possible near-future applications of Maria's research in quantum computing, in autonomous vehicles, in responsive architecture, in systems resilience simulation, and there were a whole list of other terms that she used that I certainly don't understand. So my question is actually this. If you two, alone or together, were invited to do a one month or longer or shorter residency with a group of AI engineers, what would happen? What would you each individually bring to share? What might your collaboration, Kate and Maria, be in that context? And um, what would you do to help the engineers reach their own capacities or glimpse their own capacities in ways that might influence the technology that they're programming? What new thresholds of understanding would you hope to reach and build beyond with them? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Maria. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I first would like to meet where they are and find out how they develop things as far as I can understand it. And then my way of working that you can, in in one week you can connect to nature and to your own starting points, connected to nature, that that gives you such a different understanding of everything. When I work with students, they find their material and they lean into the material, but that's so intimate. I'm not doing it, they do it. 
but I know how important it is they go with this other way of sensing into the material. And then this magic is happening. And if you didn't have a week, I mean, if you thinking about like production cycles in, in, in these kind of very fast moving companies, if you just were there, if your presence was there and you and Kate could just be there working together and be something that people could tap into and tap out of. Well, I already think that when they see the work or hear Kate's music, that already something is happening. Mm. The work is our language now. So mm. that's already a big thing. And then perhaps... That invisible, nonlinear algorithm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's already touching, uh, probably in their way, also their knowledge of their experience. Mm. So if they're open for that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess like um, from my side, it would be something to do with the melodic and harmonious emergence (laughs) of communication um, of data that's not about a simple turning on and off or numbers, but the harmonious and melodic possibilities of communication somehow. Mm. Well, Silicon Valley, if you're out there listening... (laughs) Kate Moore and Maria Bleza, I want to thank you very, very much for joining me on the podcast. It has been a real pleasure and an inspiration, and I'm so glad that you could share the time with me and with the listeners. Mm. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, Maria. It was really yeah. a very inspiring conversation. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, Subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank programming partners Anton van den Hengel, director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, and Tom Haidu, director of SIA Furler Institute, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, as well as the Dutch Creative Industries Fund for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab.